Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you back to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. Today, I am here with uh, one of my friends from Springfield, and we are doing a 10 questions with a person in recovery. Adrian, go ahead and introduce yourself really quick. My name is Adrian Laswell. I'm 33 years old. I've lived in Springfield my whole life, and I'm living a life in recovery. <clears throat> awesome. I'm glad you put that in there. That's a nice catch. Is there a better life in recovery? There sure is. So today we're going to be doing 10 questions. If you've never listened to the podcast before, basically uh, many moons ago, probably a couple of years ago, actually, I put out a uh, question and I may be redoing questions with the exact same technique, but I said, Hey, if you could talk to somebody in recovery, what are the 10 questions? What are the questions you would want to hear them answer? And then I took the list of about 50 questions that had come in. I compiled them. I put them on a doodle poll, put it out there. And these are the 10 questions that people said they would want to hear. So now that you know a little bit about 10 questions, let's just jump right into it. So Adrian, why did you start using to begin with? Um, I started using drugs because my friends were doing it. Um, they made me feel good. And then I was also attracted to a lifestyle that I only thought happened in the movies. So when you said they made you feel good, what do you mean by that? Uh, they gave me a you know, looking back, it was a really a false sense of confidence. Um, I lost weight. I felt prettier. People seemed to notice me. I, I finally fit in a group of people that I had never, you know, really felt like I'd fit in my whole life. Okay. So what, so why did you stop then? Um, I overdosed several times and, um, I just came to the realization I'm 33 years old and I've spent over half my life in an addiction and it's time to grow up. I have a two and a half year old son that needs a mom and uh, I just, I have so much, you know, life to give and life to live. And so it was just time to grow up. So what was the first thing you ever tried? How old were you? Just curious. This isn't one of the questions. I'm just curious. Um, the first drug I ever tried was marijuana. Um, but the first, you know, hard drug I did was cocaine. And I seemed to have fell in love with that. And then um, later on, several years later, I was introduced to methamphetamine. And that's really what uh, took me down through there. But I had also had a um, couple medical issues. I was seeing a doctor. He was prescribing me pain pills. And before I knew it, I had a... $300 a day pain pill habit. And then uh, when I couldn't afford that anymore, I turned to heroin. So th that's interesting. And I want to talk about that for a second. Um, 
Number one, there's this, I don't know, it's almost a, a false narrative, false, I'd say dichotomy. It sounds like that word should fit there, but I'd probably have to look up a definition to make sure. Um, so there's this false uh, narrative, false dichotomy. Yeah, we'll just go with dichotomy. It sounds intelligent, right? It does. Well, this false dichotomy that uh, all, all these people have never had substance use problems and then instantly their doctor introduced them to a pain pill and all of a sudden their entire life turned to shambles. But like when I look at my life, like, yes, I, I overdosed three times, but... The big piece was I already had a substance use issue. And then I had a car accident where I died three times, and that's how my opioid use started. But I was already dependent on other medications. I was already chaotically using other drugs. I'd already been to prison for chaotically using other drugs, right? So you, you kind of sound like you're saying the same thing. It wasn't like this doctor was like, here here's a pain pill, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I think I'm going to develop a substance use disorder now. You already had a substance use disorder to begin with, yes? Yes. Okay. See, the, the reason I think we need to make some of that clear is because we have a lot of people who who need uh, pain medication, like people with chronic long-term pain that's only managed by pain medication that are being impacted now. Uh, a, because doctors don't understand the difference between dependence and addiction, and I guess neither does the federal government. And because of that, they're limiting the amount of, uh, they call them MMEs, which are like morphine units, how they measure it. Um, they're, they've set a cap. So there was a lot of people that had chronic pain that have now been taken below that cap. And believe it or not, when they can't get enough pain medication to manage their pain, one of a couple of things is happening. What do you think those are? Uh, they're going to the streets to look for more pain meds or the cheap alternative, which is heroin. In, in the beginning, it's cheaper. That's one. And you want to guess what number two is? Uh, they go into withdrawals? No, they're dying by suicide. Okay. You know, yes, they go into withdrawals um, a lot of times because their body's dependent. They don't have an addiction. They don't have a substance use disorder. They don't have negative consequences, and yet they're using. And in fact, their negative consequences are occurring because they're not able to uh, take the medication that they need in order to give them a better quality of life. So anyway, I just I always think that's interesting, and I think that's really something we need to work on because we have a lot of people now that are dying by suicide because they're not able to manage the pain they're in and they lose all hope. So, so what does recovery mean to you? Recovery means a lot of things. It's a, it's a new way to live. It's a, it's not just like temporary, uh, state of, you know, just being in recovery. Recovery it to me is like, uh, is lifelong. Just kind of like, you know, people go on these diets and they're temporary, but like, to me, like, you know, it's a lifestyle change in terms of recovery for me. Um, means I have to, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not like a state of being, it's like, uh, you're renting it, but rents do every day. So I have to do things to maintain it. Like, you know, seek my counseling. Um, you know, I, I go to NA, um, I go to my, my, you know, my outpatient classes. Um, I have changed my friends, my, just my whole life, just everything about it. And I have to continue doing that every day and continue doing those same things to keep it. So what were the things that got you started into recovery to begin with? And here's where I'm going to draw a line. Abstinence and recovery are two completely different things. In fact, I would argue that I know people who are still using, who have a better recovery than people that have been absent for 10 years. 
20 years. So, because recovery, of course, is, well, according to SAMHSA, abstinence isn't even involved in it, right? It is about living a self-directed life, striving to reach your full potential, um, and uh, doing things that improve your health and wellness. And I said that in completely the wrong order. Forgive me. Um, but yeah, so so what are those things that got you started moving beyond just going, well, you know, I just don't want to use. Because that's a pretty low, it's a high bar, but at the same time, it's a pretty low bar as far as your life. Um, so I guess what, what you're asking me is like, uh, like what is, is like driving me to do that? Uh, at the very beginning, like what were those things that kind of kicked you into recovery to begin with? What were those things that said made you go, oh crap, this, I, I need to make all kinds of lifestyle, like you said, lifestyle changes, not... Um, overdosing, of course. Uh, it's not fun. It's scary. Um, and uh, my parents are raising my two and a half year old son right now and um, doesn't have a, he doesn't have a father and... Um, my, my mom and dad are older and they are, my mom's health is failing. And like, I just, I have to take care of my son. I have to be a mom to him. I mean, that is what's driving me, um, really. And then I, uh, I, uh, I've had run-ins with the law. Um, I did get in some trouble and, uh, I've realized that I have done several, you know, bits in prison. And, um, this time when I got in trouble, I'm facing severe consequences that could put me away for a very long time with my, with my criminal history. And so I don't want to die in federal prison. Um, I, I, uh, I'm pretty intelligent. I have some college, like I just took a, you know, I don't really know, you know, I don't fit like the mold of, of coming from a broken home. I don't have a lot of trauma. Um, but like, I just have to, you know, I have to be there for my son and I just, and I don't want to die in prison. Yeah, I don't think anybody really wants to die in prison. Uh, just like I don't think anybody ever wants to have a substance use disorder. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think that was a choice back in like kindergarten when they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I don't remember convict or substance use disorder anywhere on there. Yeah. Yeah, those weren't options we got to choose from. Uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes we're pushed towards that. So... And I don't know, I've got to ask that question because there could be multiple meetings. When you said your son doesn't have a father, does that mean he's not in the picture or does that mean he's no longer alive? Um, he's not He's not in the picture and probably won't be. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. I didn't know. So Yeah, absolutely. So in early recovery, what helped you maintain the most? Um, the, I mean, the, the want to change my life. And I will also say I am on the Vivitrol shot and that helps. I know it's not long-term, it's short-term, but it has helped me keep my thinking straight, um, my cravings down, and it just kind of helps me going in the in the path opposite of, you know, where I came from, the streets. It just helps keep me focused, but that's really um, one of the main the main things. So can I ask you, why is that, why, why would you call that a short-term solution? Well, because I can't be on the shot forever. It's like a 12-month program, really. I mean, I know, I think I, I think I could take naltrexone, um, but I know the shot is about it is like a year as a 12-month program from what I understand, and so that's not forever, but, you know, 
I feel like it's enough time, you know, a year is, is not very long in, in the grand scheme of things, but it is hopefully long enough to get me, you know, where I need to be in my head and then like building a foundation with NA and AA and like, you know, right here at SRCC, like a new group of friends, uh, new places to hang out, um, you know, a good, I'm hopefully getting ready to start a new job. I want to go back to school in the fall and um, that's, that's helping me get there. Yeah, and you know they have like a behavioral health program that you can take now at OTC that's pretty short that puts you right into doing behavioral health when you graduate. Uh-uh. Yeah. I've had some friends that have gone through that. But anyway, um, yeah, because that puzzles me. When I hear medication, and I know a lot of times people think of it as short term, I don't think of medication as short term. I think of, uh, I used to. You know, um, I used to think of... I will cut back in the day. I used to think, uh, actually I had a pretty twisted philosophy. I was one of those people who worked a humble program where I felt everybody's recovery should look like mine. Um, so therefore I thought everybody should just be abstinent. And then I realized that, uh, well, like I said, abstinent was a really low bar. And I started realizing that I was running into old heads in the rooms that had, that were, call them dry drunks and dry bags, whatever that, I mean, they're miserable. They, all they do is complain. I mean, they're 20 years in and every, um, Monday, all I would hear was them talk about how they almost relapsed over the weekend and how much they want to use. And all I could think is, well, I don't want what they got, you know, um, maybe there's more to this. And, and for me, uh, for some people, they find it in the rooms. For me, I found it outside of the rooms, but, but I found that desire to, uh, to want to live a better life. And then I found a mentor that actually was doing everything I had because I got to a point where I'm like, well, just being absent, it sucks. Right. Um, and I realized that, that I had a friend though, back when I was still caught up in my pride and I don't know, I'll tell a little story. So, so our judge, I I was a treatment court therapist and the judge had said, okay, we're going to have to start letting people, uh, uh, come in with medication. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, I was thinking mental health medication. She's like, well, you know, I mean like methadone, uh, suboxone. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Give people a drug to get them off a drug. And then I went to, uh, one of my partners had a few more years in the program than I did. And I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They get started telling us, uh, that we have to allow people, uh, on medication into the treatment program. I said, everybody should just stop the way we did. And he said, what do you mean we did? And I'm like, well, everybody should just stop using drugs like you and me. And he was like, David, I'm going to tell you something that nobody outside of my family knows. And he was like, uh, I've been on methadone at the time. I think it was for six years. He's like, I've been on methadone for six years. And I mean, he was, he sits in the rooms, he chairs meetings, he has his own business. He, I mean, his income is six figures and he's been his uh, kids, uh, like Pee Wee football coach. He's been his kid's uh, a t-ball coach. I mean, he's been there. And I was like, well, why don't I know that? And he's like, well, because I talked about it the first time I went in to a meeting and they told me that I wasn't really sober, uh, that I wasn't really clean, he said, so I just haven't told anybody. Uh, I was like, well, God, you've been on it for six years. I'm like, when are you going to get off it? And he said, are you on any medication? And I was like, well, yeah. He said, what are you on medication for? And I said, for uh, my cholesterol. And he's like, well, how's your cholesterol? And I'm like, oh, my doctor says it's fine because the medications work. Oh, 
you know, that's why it scares me sometimes when I hear about limited programs where they're telling you when to get off and you're not getting to choose that yourself is this may be something that you need. You know, I mean, who is somebody else to tell you to get off the medication if the medication is working? I would love to stay on it for as long as I possibly could. So why is that? I mean, can I ask you, uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with Vivitrol, which is the one month long shot version of naltrexone. Yes. Um, but tell me what it does for you and why you like it so much. Um, it completely takes away the thoughts and which turn into the obsession of using. Like I don't think about getting high, um, on anything, you know, it's supposed to be for alcohol and opiates, but I don't think about using anything. And therefore, like, if I'm not obsessing on using drugs, I can focus what I need on what I need to in my life, what is important. And um, I was on it for several months um, back a couple years ago before I got pregnant with my son. And um, I stayed sober for, you know, for quite some time after that. Um, but, uh, I mean, you're right. Like, I don't know why I couldn't stay on it forever. Like, because it works for me. Like, I, it absolutely works. And that's what I believe is I believe everybody should find their recovery path. And it's weird uh, how different everybody's recovery path is. Uh, for instance, yours. Uh, you're in recovery. We don't have to say you're in medicated-assisted recovery or medicated-assisted treatment. You're in recovery. Yeah. And your recovery path, it sounds like, has been uh, meetings mm -hmm. and medication. Yeah. That's the recovery path. Uh, I don't meet people and they're like, oh, I'm in Jesus-assisted recovery. Oh, how you doing? Oh, hi, my name's David. I'm in 12-step-assisted recovery. Yeah. They just call it recovery and I don't know why everybody else can't call it recovery. Uh, I've also ran into some issues where, man... It's weird, but we had some people that had been around their rooms for a really long time that started drinking in moderation and they got unfriended by everybody. And now they will go out and I'm really, I'm good friends with one of the couples and I'm, I, I know the other couple like, uh, pretty well, like referred her for a job and all kinds of things. And, um, they're living their best life and they're having a glass of wine every once in a while. They're having a margarita with dinner every once in a while. And they literally lost their friends uh, because their recovery path is drinking in moderation. Now, I know I can't do that, but why should I look down on somebody else who can or stop being their friend because their recovery looks different than mine, right? Yeah. Because recovery is recovery. Sure is. You know, and I even have people ask, well, can you be in recovery and drink? Yeah, I think you can, I think you, I like saying somebody's in recovery when they say they're in recovery. And when it talks about improving your health and wellness, uh, this is one of my arguments. Imagine I am still injecting, but now I am going to syringe access and I'm getting sterile syringes. I'm using a sterile syringe every time I'm not sharing syringes or wash or anything else and risking uh, either getting HIV or hep C or sharing it with other people. Now, according to this SAMHSA def definition, uh, does that improve my health and wellness if I'm no longer sharing syringes? Kind of. Me I'm not risking sepsis, bloodborne infections, hep C, HIV. Um, I mean, then yeah. 
is that self-directed? It's extremely self-directed, yeah. isn't it? Because everybody else is like, you need to stop using. And I'm like, but I'm taking a step into recovery. It's recovery from using, from sharing syringes and reusing syringes. Now, does that look like my recovery? No. But at the end of the day, there's this thing called harm reduction. And harm reduction says I meet people where they're at. And you know what? If you're still going to do sex work, can we at least make sure that you have condoms that you're using and that maybe you have a spotter or somebody to help keep you safe? Right? Yeah. So uh, if you're still going to continue to use methamphetamine or heroin and inject it, can we at least provide you with something? Even if you're snorting, can we provide you with a straw and some other things so that you're not sitting there sharing a straw and possibly getting hep C that way? Right? Yeah. So it is helping people where they're at, meeting them where they're at, and seeing if we can meet any of their other base needs. Okay, you want to use, but... I mean, you're sleeping in a bandos. Would you like to? Would you like help finding a place? Hey, you know what? I, I'm still going to use, but I'd like to find a job. Okay, let's see if we can help you find a job. Right? Meeting people where they're at and saying, "What would you like to work on?" And sorry, that's a rant. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and stop. But it puts a different perspective than most people have on things. It, it really does. Well, how many people say in the rooms feel like if you're on, if you're taking any type of medication, you're not really in recovery? I mean, I think there's quite a few. You know, especially around here. I've run into it a lot. And who is somebody else to define your recovery? I may not be recovered by your standards, but it's funny, like I said, how many people work a... Uh, a pro- uh, they say, I work a very humble program, but your recovery has to look exactly like mine. I mean, if you're not, you know... I, and it's weird. I always say I'm too... Uh, I'm too Jesus for recovery people and too recovery for the Jesus people. <laughs> so I've got one side that is like, well, if you don't pray to Jesus and you don't read the Bible every day, then you're not really going to keep your recovery. And I've got the other side that's like, if you don't go to 12 meetings a day and you don't work your steps and you don't have a sponsor, you're not going to stay in recovery. And the truth is somewhere there in the middle And my hope is that over time we can bring those people together and make them realize that, you know what, your way is highly effective for you, but let's not trash other people's methods and tell them that it's not effective for them because they probably know themselves better than you do. Right? Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Uh, Yay! What's the most important thing you've done for your recovery? (sighs) In all honesty, um, it's going to have to have been, um, I guess, uh, really getting into getting into an inpatient treatment um, after detox and, and getting on, on, on the Vivitrol shot because that is detrimental to me in my early recovery to keep me on the right path. Because if you were using opioids, you have to wait, is it five five to seven days before you can get the Vivitrol shot? I mean, that's what they say, but if I would wait a little longer, because if not, it can be, be a little rough. But I mean, yeah, like I waited, uh, I did a rapid Suboxone taper when I first got to inpatient treatment, and that was about seven days long. And then um, I had to wait 14 days for um, the buprenorphine to get out of my system to start Oof. the Vivitrol shot. So you got to go through withdrawals. A little bit. I mean, so did the taper help? It did. Kind I of mean, took the edge off of how severe the withdrawals were. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, I still had like, uh, you know, um, some withdrawals, but not near as as bad as the, as they could have been. Okay. 
Well, that's good. Yes, yes. So, is there one thing you do every day that helps you maintain your recovery? It sounds like there might be several things you do every day, but is there one thing you do every day that helps you maintain your recovery? Um, every day, um... Say a little prayer for you. Um, you know, I, I, you're fine. I live in a sober living house. And so, um, I would say, you know, uh, that's a hard one to answer. Um, you're the only one that can. I know. Every day I surround myself with like-minded people, um, for the most part and, uh, who, hold me accountable and I hold them accountable. And that is my daily, um, that is my biggest thing right now. Like for like my daily maintenance is, uh, being in that sober living house. Like accountability partners, accountability buddies. Yes, I know that's right. Alrighty then. That's awesome. So what is it that keeps you from going back to old behaviors? Um, The fear of dying um, is one. Um, I have a I have an amazing relationship with a wonderful significant other um, who you know. He's all right. <laughs> we have a good relationship, and um, you guys are pretty good, decent spades partners too. We are. We are pretty good spades players. Um, you know, and like we were in addiction together, and we have. You know, he was sober before I before I got there. He helped push me there. Um, but we have a wonderful thing, and, I mean, that, that means a lot to me. Um, and I know if I go back, I would lose that. I have a wonderful family and a wonderful son, and um, I've came a long ways. And, um, and like I said, I fear also my, you know, trouble with the law. But um, I just have a lot of really good things going right now that I've never had in my life, and I don't ever want to go back. Alrighty then. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. <laughs> <clears throat> so you were in a relationship because there's also different relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in re- a relationship with somebody that you act actively used with and partied with. Mm-hmm. Were you guys in a relationship back then? Yeah. Okay. And then you guys just carried the relationship through. So he got he stepped into recovery while you were still using. So I'll give you a little background. Um, hope he doesn't mind. <laughs> So, if he does, we'll just pull him on one of these and he can spill some stuff too. Okay, I like that. Um, he, uh, when we got together, he was, I mean, he was on parole, uh, you know, and then uh, we met and, you know, it, it was what it, it was, what it was. Um, and uh, then he went back to prison. And so while he was in prison, I naturally sold him a dream, telling him I was getting clean, I was going to get clean, we were going to have a different life. And I was lying to myself and I was lying to him, but to him, it was real. And so therefore, before he got out of prison, he decided to find new beginnings, sober living program, and was going to live a clean life. Got the Vivitrol shot before he left prison. He gets out and I'm not clean. And he is. And so for longer than he should have he chased me through trap houses and dope houses and begged me to go to detox and he drugged me here and drugged me there and 
you know, I would go to Cox to get my medically cleared and then I couldn't get into detox. And I did this five or six times until he damn near gave up on me because in all reality, in my mind, I wanted to go back to where we were at. So I thought I would get him high before he ever got me clean. And that's really selfish. And I really hate to admit that, but it is the truth. But he finally gave me an ultimatum and it was a big deal. And I finally got into detox and I called and cussed him out every day on my one 10 minute phone call, told him he wasn't going to make decisions for me, him or my family, but they got me a bed date at, um, an inpatient facility. And I went and I didn't look back. Alrighty then. <laughs> Sorry for all <laughs> no, that. No, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for that little background too. I didn't know that about you guys in your relationship. Yeah. So they talk about the gifts of recovery. What's changed in your life since you stepped into recovery? So what are those positive gifts that you've got? Um, ooh, um, the ability to see clear, to, um, oh, to love and be loved, like, and it feel and it be real and not, you know, street love, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Street love. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have goals. Like, it has helped me, like realize where I don't ever want to go back to and where I want to be. And I want to be able to give back to people in some way, shape or form. Eventually I would like to, um, and you know, like I have my family back and they have me back and that's a huge gift. It really is. Absolutely. Yeah. Street love, street friends where there's always an ulterior motive to anything and everything that you do and people do for you. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to say I didn't make friends. I took hostages. So <laughs> whether it was emotional, you know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. So it's nice, isn't it? Whenever you finally have people in your life that that are there because it's the right thing to do. Right. Uh, when, I, when I finally had somebody love on me, I remember thinking like, what the heck are you up to? Oh, my gosh. You're like, what's your end game? You know, yeah. you plotting on me, boy. Yeah. You know, it was weird. I had this couple love on me and I didn't know what to do with it at first because I was looking for them to have some ulterior motive at the end of it. And they just, they loved me when I didn't love myself and cared about me when I didn't care about myself. And they saw that I had the ability to live a better life when I didn't see it myself. And because of that, I mean, they, they just loved on me and that was really weird. Yeah. You know, and it's so different from those relationships out there, you know, because I think there's good people who do drugs. Yeah. I wasn't a good person. <laughs> you know, I was not a good person. I was the kind of guy that would see somebody with a key tag and be like, free shot of dope for that tag. What do you want? You know, I mean, I was a douchebag. Um, <laughs> I was in it for money and power and and there's other people that don't live that way, you know, and I think that we get more press for the bad we do than other people. It's kind of like in recovery. Uh, they don't give press to the positive things people in recovery do very often. More often than not, that leading story is about the person who was doing negative things while they were under, uh, you know, while they were uh, using. So. Yeah. So last question, if you could travel back in time and talk to yourself the day before you used, what would you say to yourself? If I could travel back in time to the day before I ever used drugs, 
You know, I want to say I would tell myself, don't do it. This is what's going to happen. But in the same sense, like the like this, the experiences, the everything that has happened has happened for a reason. Um, I try not to have a lot of regrets in my life. I mean, I have a few. But everything that, I, that has happened to me and that I've put myself through and others have put me through has brought me to where I'm setting right now. And I don't really know if I would go back and change anything. I, that's a hard one. That's like a, that's, that's super hard to answer. Um, This is actually one of those questions that I think I may be getting rid of because almost everybody that sat here has been like, and I agree with it. I mean, that's one of the shirts. I know I talk about this all the time on podcasts, but it's one of the shirts I'm thinking of making. It'll say no regrets. (laughs) And and on the back, it'll say, I regret nothing because I love the life I have today. You know, it, like you have a child, you're in a relationship. And if it wasn't for everything you've been through, you might not have your son. Yeah. You might not be in a relationship with the person you're in a relationship with. Your life could be completely different. Would you want a life without your son and without the guy you're with? You know, I mean, that's what I look at. My son and daughter wouldn't exist if my life was different and I love them. So I can't regret those things. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, you know, as bad as I want to tell myself, don't do this. You're smarter than that. You know, don't ruin your life. Uh, I, I don't think I could change anything. Yeah. I don't think I could. And that's why I think I'm removing that question because it's all, almost always been the same. Or maybe it's a good question because, because it lets us, while we're sitting here talking about it, see that we're on the other side of it. Um, and that we're happy with the lives we have today. So we can't beat ourselves up about the choices we made and the, either the horrific things we did or the horrific things that were done to us because all of that had to happen for you to be sitting here right now talking on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Well, Adrian, I typically uh, leave with uh, something and then ask the person with me for a last thought. I just want to say, hey, you know what? Um, we're seeing tough times right now. I know here in Springfield, Green County, like the first six months of 2020 compared to 2019, we more than doubled the number of people who died from opioid overdoses. And I think a lot of that is uh, due to uh, lack of information. Um, I think we don't have enough Narcan out there. People aren't as aware of the Good Samaritan Bill as they should be. And, you know, I, I think also the stigma that exists stops people from asking for help because they're afraid of how people will look at them and treat them after they know they have a substance use disorder, uh, especially with, you know, one of those harder drugs. It's weird. Like alcohol kills more people than all the other drugs combined. But if I, if you were to walk into work on Monday and be like, oh my God, I was so drunk. I don't know how I got home. Everybody's going to laugh and clap you on the back. Um, If you're like, oh my gosh, I shot up heroin on Saturday. They're going to fire you and you're not going to have a job. (laughs) You know, we look at those drugs so differently. And the truth is, you know, a lot of it is about moderation. Honestly, I mean, it's getting away from chaotic use. And, you know, if you're stuck in the middle of chaotic use and you want to change that, you know, there's people out there to talk to. If you're stuck in the middle of chaotic use and that's where you want to be, then by all means, you know what, get fentanyl test strips. Uh, Make sure that you have Narcan and that you're trained in Narcan. Uh, You know, especially now that we're starting to find it in cocaine and we're starting to find it in methamphetamine supplies, 
in trace amounts. It takes very little fentanyl um, to kill somebody, especially somebody who's opioid naive. Uh, and, uh, man, make sure that you're not sharing syringes. Uh, same thing with straws, dollar bills. If you're snorting, you know, make sure that you're not sharing those things with somebody else, even spoons. It's funny. I have people that they're like, oh, well, uh, I've, I always used, uh, my own back when I was, uh, a counselor, I would have people and they would come to me after they got their test results back. And they're like, man, I don't know how I got hep C. I never shared a syringe, but they shared like a spoon. And I'm like, well, that's how you got it. You use the same spoon that other people did and they had hep C and it was on that syringe that they dipped in there. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's about not sharing supplies, using your own, uh, because everybody deserves to live their best life. Um, I don't know. You got any parting words for the people listening? Um, that recovery can, you know, it, it can happen for anybody, um, and there is such a better life in recovery than out there in addiction. And um, there is hope. There is hope. Yeah, now we just need to get that out there. Yeah. Absolutely. So there is a better life in recovery. I'll let you define what your recovery looks at, but I see it as any positive change. So I will talk to you guys next week. Adrian, thanks a lot for spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Have a great day, sweetie. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. There's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. What's up, all? Aaron, but not that Aaron, here to tell you about Sif Pop Writer's Room. For the past several years, there have been a growing amount of writers for SifPop.com, providing best ever challenges, movie reviews, themes, legacies, connections, and so much more. Sif Pop Writer's Room is where that all comes together, giving a voice to those words that you read. And on the show, every week is excellent, getting to chat such a wide variety of movies with a wide variety of movie lovers, and I'm really having a lot of fun with the show, and I just think that you would too. So check out Sif Pop Writer's Room wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll see you over there. Just remember to knock first.